nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Hellnavy. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, a very special interview with Nancy Faust, communications manager and research team member at simplyinfo.org, which is one of the most reliable, verifiable, fact-based sites we have for information on Fukushima and other nuclear hotspots. Nancy gives a clear rundown on the current status of each of the Fukushima reactors, as well as a report on the Sendai reactors following last weekend's deadly string of earthquakes in the south of Japan. We'll also hear from Christian Brun, executive producer of the movie The Man Who Saved the World, which will be featured at the International Uranium Film Festival in Hollywood next week. It's the true story of the Russian soldier who defied protocol, training, orders, and direct pressure from his peers when he decided he would not push the button that would have launched World War III based on, as it turns out, a computer error. A true story and a harrowing one. Plus, we will have our popular Numbnuts of the Week feature, Nuclear Reactor Duck and Cover Report, and more honest nuclear information than I found in my doctor's waiting room this week. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, April 19, 2016, and here is the week's nuclear news from our perspective. In case you can't tell, I am in my second week of battling what turned out to be bronchitis, and I'm supposed to be on vocal rest and bed rest. So here are just a couple of headlines which we will catch up with next week. There's been a leak in a massive nuclear waste storage tank at the Hanford site in Washington, with more than eight inches of the most toxic stuff on Earth leaking between the inner and outer containment shell. Less than 12 hours after Entergy met with concerned members of the public over the future of the Pilgrim nuclear plant in Massachusetts, they announced that they had already made the decision to refuel next year and run that sucker until 2019. The top five U.S. nuclear power plants, where employees made the most allegations about safety problems, from 2012 through 2015 are in number five, Indian Point, number four, Susquehanna in Pennsylvania, three, Browns Ferry in Alabama, number two, Watts Bar in Tennessee, and number one, Millstone in Connecticut. And with all these nuke problems, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission has announced that it will cut its annual budget by $49 million and eliminate 185 full-time positions over the next two years. In case you couldn't guess, that was Numbnuts of the Week. We'll have our featured interviews in just a moment, but first, Nuclear Hot Seat is listener-supported and relies on your donations to help keep us going and growing and moving forward. 
There are monthly running expenses, website assistance, and travel expenses when it's important for me to get those stories that need to be covered. So whatever you can do to help us meet these goals, please do what you can. You can always start with a Starbucks donation, the equivalent of a cup of coffee. So buy me a cup of coffee. I won't drink it, but I will apply it to our monthly expenses. You can help us out by going to NuclearHotSeat.com, click on the big red donate button, and know that whatever you can offer to help us out is deeply appreciated. And as always, you've got my genuine gratitude. For Nuclear Hot Seat, I attempt to use only verifiable information, and I tell you this in the course of doing the show. This is in order to cut through the exaggerations, overstatements, echo chamber, and sometimes downright hysteria that unfortunately often marks reports by those with even the best intentions when relaying information about what's going on at Fukushima and in the rest of the nuclearized world. Today's interview is with a woman who's been directly involved in getting the information right and providing source material that's been used by journalists around the world and quite regularly on this show. Nancy Faust is communications manager and research team member at simplyinfo.org. This is a not-for-profit research collective focusing on the Fukushima disaster. Simplyinfo.org holds and manages the largest public archive of data on the Fukushima disaster in the world and a number of their technology proposals to TEPCO have been adopted for use or further research over the last five years. Nancy coordinates group information dissemination, public communications, and is editor of publications. She also participates in the day-to-day research and analysis of the disaster data as a member of the research team. In this interview, note that when Nancy refers to the NRA, She means Japan's National Regulatory Authority, not the organization in the United States that deals with guns. We spoke on Sunday, April 17, 2016. Nancy Faust, welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat. Hi, thanks for having me. Let's start out with a little bit about your background and how you got into doing the kind of research and the kind of work you're doing now. Simply Info started as an offshoot of a live blog that Reuters was running back in 2011 when the earthquake struck. There was a number of people that had various skills in different disciplines, uh, were providing information and helping kind of coordinate people to find firsthand information. And as Reuters phased out their live blog, those of us that had been contributing and organizing stayed together and developed Simply Info, and we've been going for five years. And there's another name that's also used, which is FukuLeaks. Is that separate? Is that the same organization? SimplyInfo.org is our official organization name. FukuLeaks is a domain name we use to contain some of our web properties. So it does get a little confusing, but the actual group's name has been SimplyInfo.org. What does SimplyInfo focus on? Our focus is the Fukushima disaster. Our main goal is to find the first-hand information, the raw data, so that people can look at that information themselves. We found, you know, during the initial disaster, it was so difficult to get factual information. Everything seemed to be clouded in, in politics and opinion and spin, and no one really knew what was actually going on. So we were looking for first-hand factual information, both in nuclear science in general as it 
applies to reactors and also what was actually going on at the plant and what does that really mean? Where do you source your information and how is it vetted for accuracy? We source information from all over the place. We wade through tons of data in a week. We're pulling data from TEPCO. We're pulling it from various companies that work with them, all these different sort of political government entities that have developed to help deal with the disaster. And we wade through all this information looking for data points. You know, is this a piece of information that's factual? And is it reliable information? You know, how was it collected? Was it collected in a reliable manner? Who was it collected from? There's been problems over time with TEPCO giving information and then coming out later saying, well, actually, that's not exactly an accurate data point, and it's actually this. There was an incident couple of years ago where they were providing beta radiation levels and the NRA came back and said you're calculating these incorrectly you're downplaying these numbers by a huge magnitude you need to go back and recorrect all of these calculations you made and when they did go back and recalculate these it showed that these beta radiation levels were quite higher so some of it comes down to you know how was the information collected and who was it collected from who are the people who work with you on the site? And when you say we, how many are there? We have a fairly tight core research team of about 10 people. Uh, they work in a number of different disciplines. We have someone who is a retired director of the research reactor at Idaho National Lab. His name's Dean Wilkie. We have a doctor from Germany that contributes uh, both on the technical aspects and on health. Uh, we have people that work in biology. We have people that have been nuclear activists. We have people that have worked in computer technology and engineering. And we have people that come and go also. We have someone that will come in, you know, and they, they work in a certain discipline like electrical engineering. And they have a question or they have some information they discovered. And they'll go, hey, I found this. What does this mean? How does this tie into everything? We also have journalists sometimes come to us looking for firsthand data so that they can help build a story that's factual. So we work with a lot of people beyond just the core group. And sometimes it's very fluid. The group has quite a track record of coming up with stories and reports that then have a direct impact on the nuclear industry. What are some of the stories that you have covered and reports you have issued that have made the biggest impact on them? We put out a report in 2015 on Unit 2. That caused a few how would you say maybe consternations with TEPCO because we had determined a couple of things that well, they knew they were true, but they had kind of not wanted to disclose them. One was had to do with a release of radiation that they had during the meltdown. They had left one of the ventilation areas open for hours while the reactor was melting down. And the press just hadn't caught that because they hadn't put the time into going through the data that we had. And that caused TEPCO a little bit of angst. And they had put out some information trying to refute it, but then the information they put out to refute it didn't have anything to back it up. So we run into things like that frequently where we find some data points that once we bring them out in the public sphere, it requires someone to make an admission. And we find that to be you know, a, a good way of going about things. It's, if you're not going to admit it, we're going to show it exists, and then you have to talk about it. 
One of the issues that I know I have found tremendously confusing, and I'll admit that tech is not my first language, but it's the ice wall at Fukushima. I've mm-hmm. heard that it's on and then it's off, and it seems like stories are contradicting on that all the time. Can you tell us briefly what the ice wall is about and where it stands now? The ice wall is this underground frozen wall that they have been building that will be around the reactor blocks. So it would isolate the soil around units one through four at the plant. The goal of this is to try to keep contaminated water from leaking out of that area. They had the equipment for the wall installed back last summer. They ran it for about a month last August. But what they ran was only the land side version of the wall. They consider it two-sided. There's the land side, and then there's the sea side. So they did a test run on the land side last year. And that seemed to work okay. We were monitoring that. They were putting out reports every couple of days as far as the temperature of the various locations. And it did appear to be freezing. So they considered that a success. But then they turned it off. And it took months to find out why did they turn it off. If the test run was going well, why did they keep it going? NRA admitted, oh, maybe around the first of the year, they had concerns that nobody really knew what was going to happen if they turned on the entire wall all at once. They were worried that it might cause groundwater to draw down too fast or to flood too high. And nobody really knew what this was going to, you know, what cascade of events were going to happen if either of these scenarios took place. So the agreement they've got with TEPCO is to now freeze it in phases. So they started on April 1st with everything turned off. Now they're turning on a small section on the seaside by Unit 1. And they're going to let that freeze for a little while and see what happens. Once that's okay and they don't think it's causing a problem, then they'll freeze another section next to it on the seaside. And they'll just keep going across and kind of stopping and checking. You know, they, it takes time for it to freeze fully, but then they'll stop and kind of check and see, is this causing something strange we need to address? So they're taking this very cautious approach that will probably take about eight months total to freeze the entire wall. And what is the hoped-for result of that freezing? They're hoping that by freezing this wall around the blocks, it will stop any contaminated water from leaking out of that area. That's been a problem is there's been different oceanographers that have said, you know, we're we're seeing that there is still a leak somewhere. So they've taken all these different measures at the plant to try to stop leaking contaminated water. They've concreted in some intake ducts. Uh, They put up a steel wall near the seafront. And all of these are to attempt to stop the groundwater from flowing through that area and pulling the highly contaminated water out to sea. So this will be kind of a long slog, and we're following it. We're guessing it's going to be about a year before anyone will really know what the outcome of this is. Thank you for that, because I haven't understood about the inside and outside versions of the wall and how that particular piece of technology is supposed to work. Right now, the story that has riveted so many of us is the current series of earthquakes that took place in Kyushu in the south of Japan, which is Mm -hmm. very close to the recently restarted Sendai nuclear reactors. What information do you have about what's going on there now? The actual epicenter of the initial very large quake was about, I think, 75 kilometers away from where Sendai is. So where that plant is that's still operating is on the outer edge of what they consider to be the earthquake zone. We were able to find some data points this weekend on how much 
building movement they had down at Sendai. And that is a piece of data that they look at to determine, you know, how dangerous is this? How much did it make the building move? They consider building and ground movement to be the points where they start considering there to be a problem where it's going to damage a reactor or cause some sort of a problem. And any of the reactors in Japan have automatic scram systems. What this is, is it's a seismic system that will automatically shut down the reactor if the building movement exceeds a certain level. The levels they have set for Scram for Sendai have not been hit yet. The ground motion levels we saw were about half of what it takes to automatically shut down that plant. But that doesn't mean that that's risk-free. Concerns that have been going around are, well, you need off-site power coming into the reactor to keep it running. Otherwise, they would have to depend on diesel generators to keep the electricity going that they need for instrumentation, pumps, and that kind of thing. With earthquakes happening constantly in that region, you worry about losing off-site power. They do have a couple of thermal power plants that are closer to the Sendai plant than they are to where the earthquake center has been happening. So that's good news, uh, as long as those keep operating and they don't start seeing heavier quakes closer down by Sendai. But in talking to uh, experts in Japan, they're telling the press that they think the earthquakes had started migrating from the center point along the fault line. And that's a little concerning because then they start going closer to where Sendai is and also to where the Ikata nuclear plant is going the other direction. It does look today like quakes have lessened. They're a little less severe. They were less often. But they're still happening, and there's also really no way of anyone to tell if there's going to be another big one involved with this. I know that you're going to keep watching this, and we will check in with you as obviously one of the more educated people, one of the most aware people about the specifics of what's actually going on there. What are some of the other stories that you are working on for Simply Info? We follow the data that comes out on a regular basis through you know the various entities, the government entities, and with TEPCO. Um, something we found recently that's quite interesting is they had outlined what they called an incineration and waste reduction plan at the plant. TEPCO is now saying that they will run out of solid waste storage at the plant within 10 years. This has caused them to take some extra steps to try to deal with the volume of waste they have at the plant. They consider waste in two categories. One is anything that's burnable. This includes any sort of combustible, like wooden building materials, radiation suits and masks, trees, bushes that they've torn out as they tried to reclaim land or take down contaminated areas at the plant. So they've got this burnable matter that they're dealing with, and then they have what they consider non-burnable. And this would be concrete building debris, steel, and also all these filter media casks that they've been producing. As they filter water, all that contamination gets pulled into these filter media. These are things like zeolite and uh, uh, little media beads and different materials like that that absorb the radiation substances out of the water. But then they have to keep that on site in a container and in a shielded area. So they have all these filter media canisters that they're now dealing with. So what they're planning on doing is anything that's in the burnable category is eventually going to get run through this new incinerator they built at the plant. 
Anything that's not burnable, they're considering it for volume reduction. For things like contaminated concrete, that may mean doing something like crushing it down into finer bits so that they can store it in a smaller area. Things like filter media, that becomes a little bit more questionable. You can't really do a whole lot with that without coming up with a very technical system. So if they're looking at reducing the volume on filter media canisters, this is going to require a new technology. With the amount of information that you clearly have at your fingertips and the care that is taken at vetting it, it seems that you and Simply Info should be a core resource for the media. And I know you've mentioned journalists occasionally during our conversation. In general, does the mainstream media seek you out and what is your relationship with them? It really depends on who it is. We do a lot of work with journalists and media not from the United States. We rarely get contacts from the U.S. media. Many times when we have had contacts from U.S. journalists, it has been that they were given a predetermined story and then want information to flesh that out. Where if we're contacted by media contacts, say in Germany, they'll ask us what's going on. Please give me the firsthand data so I can review it for myself and develop my story. So it's very interesting the approaches that we see from two different countries and how their media operates. It's definitely a sign of the corporate media takeover here in the United States that, as it was pointed out online earlier today, there haven't even been stories in our major newspapers that there's been a major series of earthquakes in Japan and the amount of damage that has resulted. There's stories about an earthquake that took place earlier today in Ecuador, but not anything about this chain of earthquakes in Japan. Yes, and, and we see that too, is the way different countries, the, the culture of their journalism can be very different for very different reasons. So we do try to keep a diverse set of media contacts and also where we source some of our information because we do look at what the media is printing. Sometimes they find something we didn't or, you know, they're doing a take on it we want to know more about. So we do look at media sources from Japan, from Europe, from other Asian countries, and try to make sure that we're catching everything that's going on. Let's shift focus a little bit here. You and Simply Info recently played a role in helping to create a new petition. This was with Fukushima Fallout Awareness Network, and Kimberly Roberson, I know, was involved, regarding the 2020 Tokyo Olympics and Paralympics. What can you tell us about that? Fukushima Fallout Awareness Network had asked me to help them come up with some data information they could use towards this petition. They had concerns about the fact that the Olympics that are supposed to be held in Tokyo are now starting to be scheduled to have some of their preliminary activities held up in Fukushima. And this is, of course, concerned people because they know it's still contaminated in many areas of Fukushima. Um, so we looked at raw data points for them. Uh, we looked at what the government of Japan is using right now is a 20 millisievert per year cutoff limit. Anything over 20 millisieverts per year they consider to be a risk where they will bar the public from being in that area on a regular basis. The ICRP, which is an international body of radiation protection, says that one millisievert per year is safe for the public, and that anything over that should be avoided. 
So this has been an ongoing problem since the initial disaster that the government of Japan is willing to expose people to higher levels than the International Radiation Protection Body says is safe. This has been a point of contention along with you know people being relocated or places being considered for evacuation or what is considered safe in general. 20 millisieverts per year is the same as the maximum radiation that many radiation workers and nuclear workers in other countries are allowed to be exposed to. So it is a quite high level. There are areas of Fukushima that still have radiation levels this high. Even in areas that aren't part of the evacuation zone or aren't considered high, there are still risks. There are hot spots all over the place. People find them by taking a radiation meter around, and they'll come across a small area where there's very high radiation. Many times, these are places where dirt and dust collect, you know, on a curb, in amongst some bushes, in a low area where runoff tends to collect when it rains, they'll find that radiation increases and this is something they found after Chernobyl also the contaminated dirt and soil will collect in certain places and cause the radiation level to go up also dirt and dust have been found to be a particular vector of contamination vacuum cleaner bags that are tested in the city of Iwaki frequently come up with very high radiation levels. People that have taken soil samples from gutters and different places have found very high radiation levels. So this is kind of an undocumented but known risk that there can be high radiation levels, even somewhere where the general radiation level of a city is not considered particularly high. And because many of these people are young people that are going to be attending the Olympics, it creates a slightly larger health threat because the younger someone is, it's considered that they're more at risk for damage from radiation as their bodies are still growing. And isn't the assumption of 20 millisieverts being acceptable in Japan contingent on this being the external exposure to the radiation as opposed to internal exposure, meaning somebody has inhaled the dust or some radioactive dirt has gotten into a cut or somehow it has gotten into food, which is then ingested and creates internal contamination. Right. The way that the government is determining these numbers is solely based on external radiation exposure. ICRP considers one millisievert to be your total, both your internal and your external exposure. So there's that discrepancy going on also. And they're not accounting for things like dust and dirt in the air or on your food. So these things that you're consuming cause an additional risk to you and an additional exposure. Also, there is no accounting for beta and alpha radiation. Explain exactly what that means and why that would be different. The government looks for mostly gamma radiation. That is what they consider to be the main vector of external exposure because gamma rays can go through you. They can also go through certain materials. So you're getting that external exposure because it has the ability to go through things. Where beta and alpha radiation won't be able to go through like a wall or a heavy plastic sheet. But if you inhale or consume those substances that have beta or alpha radiation, it's in your body and it has the ability to be strong enough to damage your cells. So this is why beta and alpha radiation are a concern, but they're not accounted for in any of the risk management that's going on in Japan. What were the materials that you helped provide to bolster what this petition is asking for? 
We provided the basic information from ICRP that documents their radiation protection standards. We also provided some radiation readings taken from around the region. Also, there's a number of citizen groups in Japan that have their own laboratories now, and they collect some very good information. They'll go around and they will do food sampling. They will do dirt samples. People can bring in soil from their property. Many people have brought in their vacuum cleaners. Bags and these citizen groups are taking these readings and then they produce a report periodically that they put online. So we're able to see what people are really finding out in the wild in Japan. As regards this petition, did you help at all with the wording of it and the angle that is taken, specifically that it is being addressed in the headline to Carolyn Kennedy, who is our United States ambassador to Japan right now? The actual petition and the work on that focus has been Fukushima Fallout Awareness Network's focus. Uh, we provided the underlying data that they needed. And this is kind of what we do with a lot of groups that we work with or that contact us is, you know, people want that firsthand data so that they can make sure they're making good assumptions. Do you know what the response has been to the petition so far with it being out not quite a week already? I haven't had a chance to see what numbers they were at yet this week. I know in the first couple of days they had quite a few hundred signatures already right after they had put it out. Uh, I would need to talk to Kim at Fukushima Fallout Awareness Network to find out where they're at this week. What are the most urgent stories and areas of research that Simply Info is working on now? Probably the biggest, most urgent thing going on right now related to Fukushima is where is the melted fuel? TEPCO has taken some steps along with these international groups that are helping them deal with decommissioning to try to determine where the fuel is. But this has also become kind of a politicized issue. TEPCO doesn't want to admit where the fuel is. The government's kind of of the mind that they don't care if this becomes public or not because it's kind of politically inconvenient as they're trying to promote the Olympics and that everything is fine in Fukushima. But knowing where this melted fuel ended up is critical for the next phase of trying to deal with the mess at the plant. The technical teams that are working on this need to be able to create technology and a plan that properly addresses finding the fuel and extracting it and putting it into containers so that it's isolated and no longer a threat to the larger environment in the immediate way that it is now. But they need to know where the fuel is to know how to go after it. With Unit 1... There's a general consensus that the fuel is, well, it's not in the reactor vessel. They know that. They've done a muon scan of the reactor vessel, and the fuel is not in it. They're going to do some more exploring around the pedestal region of the containment vessel. So this is the area beneath the reactor itself, but it's still inside the containment vessel. That should be done within the next year. They're developing the robot and getting the plan together for that right now. But one of the larger concerns is that they have admitted that some of the fuel is in the Taurus room and the Taurus tube, which is an area that's outside of containment. And TEPCO in the past has hinted that, yes, there's small amounts of fuel fragments that are also in that contaminated water. And this is, starts going back to why they're so concerned about having contaminated water leak out of the building basements, is they don't want more of this really highly contaminated stuff going further than it already has. Now, with Unit 2, 
This is one of the reactors that we've done more in-depth research on and produced a report on that. We're working on the same for Units 1 and 3. With Unit 2, our best estimate right now is that the bulk of the fuel left the reactor vessel, ended up in the pedestal that's directly below it, and has burned in some form down into the base mat concrete. If anyone's ever looked at a cross-section diagram of the reactors they have at Fukushima, there's a big pad of heavy concrete beneath the reactor and the containment. And that is what it would have to burn through before it would reach soil. But in our research, we found that uh, when they built these reactor buildings, they used large amounts of rebar, rebar steel, to reinforce that concrete to make it nice and stiff, to make it withstand earthquakes, to make it withstand you know, the years of use. But all of that steel creates a web, as you would, in the concrete that could degrade the concrete, cause it to break. That steel could melt when it comes in contact with hot melted fuel, causing that steel to break down and melt also. So there's this big concrete pad underneath there, but it's also fairly vulnerable. So this is kind of the million dollar question is what actually happened? We have a pretty good idea where the fuel is, but we don't know yet. The situation. So that is kind of the next task on Unit 2. They're working on doing some more robot and some more scope work for Unit 2, but they keep running into levels of high radiation that they have to decontaminate before they can go further to get equipment inside Unit 2's containment. Unit 3 is a complete nobody knows at this point. They've shown some radiation readings for the Taurus room and Taurus tube of Unit 3 that did not show very high levels of radiation. So, it, And there's not a lot of damage in that vicinity in the building. So it's unlikely that the fuel in Unit 3 did what the fuel in Unit 1 did. But they're also not finding, you know, the smoking gun yet at Unit 3. They are fairly behind at Unit 3 compared to Units 2 and 1 because they've had to decontaminate so much of the building and able to get equipment and people in further. So that one may be the last one. They really know where the fuel ended up. This is all fascinating information and certainly in more depth and intricacy than most of what is out there in the world. What you are providing is an enormous gift to those of us who care about what is happening at Fukushima and want to know the truth, not the echo chamber, not the hysteria, not the claims as I have heard that somebody's claiming that he knows exactly where the melted fuel is by spiritual means and it's underneath the continental shelf or some such. But you're really talking about the truth of it here in a way that we can rely upon. What's next for simply info. What is it that will help keep you going forward? The in-depth analysis we did on Unit 2 in 2015, we're doing the same with Unit 1 and Unit 3, and those are in the research phase right now and should be out within the next year. And we consider these documents really important because what we're doing is we're going back and we're getting all these volumes of data that were put out over the last five years and we're going back and we're sifting through all of that and we're putting it together and putting all those puzzle pieces together and seeing what shows up. And the exercise we did with this with Unit 2 was very enlightening as far as the discoveries we made when we started actually looking at all of those pieces of data together in one place at one time. Other things we're working on is we're looking at what's going to happen in the future with these buildings. The reactors are obviously all heavily damaged, but you're dealing with steel and concrete, and those materials age. 
they're exposed to the elements. There's been salt water injected into some of the systems. So there's aging issues where they're now starting to look to see, do we need to do something different to keep the steel structure from falling apart over the next you know, 40 plus years while we try to decommission this building. So those are some of the research projects that these international teams are working on right now. We're also looking at things like the decay heat factor of the melted fuel. How hot is it right now? How much radiation is it still really giving off wherever it's at? And do they really need to continue injecting water into these reactors? And this is something we're researching on right now. They've been pouring water. It's a small amount of water, but they pour it in constantly into the three melted reactor vessels. Our assumption right now is it's less about cooling and more about tamping down gases and hydrogen. Hydrogen is something that they're very concerned about with these three reactors. They've put systems in place to inject nitrogen into the reactor buildings. So those containment vessels in the reactor vessel get an injection of nitrogen all the time to try to keep hydrogen from building up. They don't want hydrogen to build up because that's explosive. If the levels of hydrogen get too high, you start running the risk of getting an explosion within those old structures that they're having to deal with. So this is something that TEPCO considers serious enough. They have a nitrogen injection system and a backup nitrogen injection system to make sure they continue to have that capability to keep nitrogen flowing into those reactors to keep the hydrogen levels down. What can we, the listeners of Nuclear Hot Seat, do to help support this invaluable work that you are doing of pulling together the genuine facts and making sure that they are facts before you share them? Getting the information out. You know, we put out reports and we put out daily updates of what's going on. It's making sure that people know, you know, what we're putting out. So sharing that information is great. You know, if people can share it, if they can put it on social media. Also, there's a lot of the information we've put out would be good to be challenging the nuclear authorities in various countries and saying, hey, you know, this is what has been discovered out of the Fukushima disaster. What are you going to do to make sure... This never happens here. And if there is an accident, that this problem after the accident doesn't happen too. There's lots to be learned, but what we're seeing is a lot of these nuclear regulatory bodies are just sweeping it all under the rug and trying to not address the risks. We will continue to address these risks along with your valuable and trustworthy information whenever we can get it. If people want to get on an email list or a notification list for Simply Info, where would they go and what would they have to do? If you go to our website, www.simplyinfo.org or fukuleaks.org, there should be a button you can get on. We do a periodic mailing. Right now we're doing them about four times a year where we're just updating on what's been the most significant technical factors. We do put out articles about one a day that has updates on what's the newest small amount of information. And we do have periodic reports coming out. So those are the best ways to kind of find out what's going on. We will definitely stay in touch with you. For now, Nancy Faust, thank you so much for being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you for having me. Nancy Faust of simplyinfo.org. Make certain you visit the site to check out their treasure trove of well-organized information, the largest public archive of verifiable data on the Fukushima disaster in the world. 
The International Uranium Film Festival will be opening in Los Angeles next week, one day only, on April 27 at the Raleigh Studios in Hollywood. All of the films being presented are excellent, but I wanted to let you know more about the knockout featured film of the festival, The Man Who Saved the World. It's a documentary about Stanislav Petrov, the Russian soldier who, in 1983, held the fate of the world in his hands. Stanislav was in charge of Russia's nuclear launch facility when the computers showed that the United States had launched five warheads at his country. Protocol, nationalism, pressure from those in the control room, and the expectations of his position. All pressured Stanislav to order the button be pushed that would start World War III and probably end life as we knew it on Earth. But he did not. And he paid a tremendous price in his life for having done the right thing. The film blends documentary footage of the now septuagenarian former soldier, showing the devastation of what that experience did to his personal life. As well as his sometimes explosive relationship with the documentarians, his meetings in the United States with Walter Cronkite, Kevin Costner, Robert De Niro, and Matt Damon, his brief and underattended yet powerful speech at the United Nations, along with feature film-worthy reenactments of what took place in that control room in 1983. Powerful yet understated, with an emotional kick that sneaks up on you. This film is already having an impact on the world, as you will learn from this interview with the film's executive producer, Christian Brune. We talked about how the production came about, and some mind-blowing specifics came to the fore on the impact of this film already in a world that has largely fallen into amnesia about the menace of nuclear bombs. Christian Brune, welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You worked on the man who saved the world. First of all, what was your position on the film, and how did you become involved with it? I am the executive producer of the film. I joined the project about five years ago. My good friend Peter Anthony in Copenhagen had started the film years ago, about nine years ago now, along with producer Jacob Stabberg. They had been working diligently for years to do this documentary and doing all the research and interviewing people and filming.、Um, and then about five years ago, we、um, needed to wrap up the movie and so change direction a little bit of how the film was put together. And、uh, that's when I joined, along with、uh, Mark Romeo, my producing partner. So Peter Anthony, the director, and Jacob Stayberg, the producer, are out of、uh, Copenhagen. So they had started this project about nine years ago. After they saw a little one-minute news clip on on、um, in Denmark and decided that Stanislav Petrov needed a little more than sixty seconds on the air, what did it take to track down Stanislav Petrov when there was first the awareness that this story existed and that he still existed? It turned out not to be so difficult to find him, but there was a little bit of investigation first to figure out if he was there, if he was still alive, and. But there had been a couple of interviews and a couple of、um, articles about him that they could go and, and talk to the journalists and figure out where he was. So it wasn't as hard. It was just that in general there was really no information, other than a few articles. There was no mainstream information about him out there.
it seems shocking that someone who had done something so magnificent and so ultimately important had been virtually ignored by the world. Was that the case in the Soviet Union or was there more awareness of him and what he did in that country? There was no awareness and even to this day there is no awareness. Um, I think today it's somehow still an embarrassment to a military system. And on the other side of that is that the, the whole incident was classified for 15 years. So it wasn't until 1998 when it was declassified that anybody could talk about it. Peter began the shooting of this project, and we see at the beginning of the film that it does not seem that Stanislav Petrov is very amenable to the process. There's quite a bit of anger that's shown. Yet he decided to go through it. Was there a change in Stanislav's orientation as the film progressed? Yes. Stanislav definitely changed behavior over time as we were shooting the film. I think once you realize that Peter Anthony was really trying to tell the true story and that finally somebody was paying attention to Stanislav's past and the incident, he slowly over the years opened up and, and wanted to share the story and wanted to get it out. This is a guy who for 15 years after going through one of the most traumatic experiences you can imagine couldn't share it with anybody, right? He, there was no outlet. He couldn't talk to anybody about it. So even after it was declassified, Stanislav, it took him a while to realize that he was allowed to talk about it. He would even turn away journalists who showed up at his store when they had when they heard about it. He would turn them away. He thought maybe they were testing him to see if he was going to give away state secrets. So it took a while for Stanislav to even come to terms with the fact that he could talk about it publicly. And then I think he also making sure that the story was told correctly because it has such a big and negative influence on his life. He wasn't keen on sharing any of that personal information in the beginning. And that really, to Peter Anthony's credit, is like what he spent years getting to and getting under the skin of, of Stanislav Petrov to get that personal side of the story. So when you do see in the film that Stanislav, in the beginning of the film and, and sort of throughout the film, gets upset and gets angry whenever we mention his mother and whenever we get into any sort of personal aspects of how it affected his life. He's just very uncomfortable with the whole situation. I think he hasn't come to terms with it yet, not to give anything away from the film. Of course, something happens in the film where he does come to terms with it. Um, but again, it, it was like a six-year process for Peter to work his way in there to build the trust and the confidence and also just for Stanislav to change himself, you know? That was one of the things in watching the film that struck me as being so remarkable because we're all used to the big nuclear story, which can be so overwhelming. But here what we are shown is a very delicate, a very touching personal story that has huge resonance to the larger nuclear story. It was like the personal and the political blended in a way that felt seamless to me in the audience, so that the ultimate moment at the end was truly deeply moving and deeply touching. 
This brings me to the point of the form of the film, which I know has confused a lot of the uh, critics who have seen it. And that is, it's a documentary. You're shooting live footage of the actual man. But then you have segments in it which take us back into that Cold War era and what he actually went through as one after another five different nuclear bombs were reported by the computer system as coming towards Russia and the entire fate of the world rested on his shoulder. How did you come to that particular structure for the movie? I think it was clear during the filming of the documentary portion early on that there was more to the story and that it was a deeper, there was a deeper understanding of Petrov himself. But I think it became clear that we needed somehow to really show the intensity of what happened in that, in that war room to really understand the pressure and the amount of people around Stanislav who all, you know, saw the same information and came to the conclusion that it was a real attack and they needed to retaliate before it was too late. So it wasn't just Stanislav against himself and figuring out it was also him against a lot of people who were in a system where one is supposed to follow protocol and follow orders. So once we made the decision to go in and do a reenactment of what happened in 1983, we decided to really bring up the level of production and to make it seem like a regular film. All the way back to Earl Morris, documentarians have done recreations and sometimes they come with a slightly negative connotation and they're not so well made. I think Peter really pulled off something incredible here that just looks like a regular movie. And I think that informed the rest of the film. So the shooting style of the whole movie then became sort of a coherent cinematic feature film, if you will. I just suspended disbelief through the whole thing because for me, form follows function. And you chose a form that allowed you to not only show the current person with the current footage, but of course, there's no footage that exists of the actual event. So it put us back in that situation in a very deep and a meaningful and powerful way. Also in the film, in the documentary section, there's quite a bit of Hollywood connection. There's poor Matt Damon, unfortunately, does not come across that well in it. But one of the most moving portions for me was when he's sitting at a table with Kevin Costner in Costner's trailer on a set. And Costner is questioning him as to how many people would have died. What would have been the actual impact? How would this have played out? And in watching Costner, he's not moving his face. We're not seeing any response from him. But at the same time, one gets a sense of exactly how deeply that information is impacting him. That was a moment when it became tremendously real for me. What did it take to get the cooperation of so many people within the Hollywood community to be filmed and be part of this documentary? Well, when we approached people to be in the film and people that Stanislav wanted to meet up with. Once they knew who he was, mm -hmm. everybody wanted to be in it. There was not a question. Everybody embraced it. And, and Kevin Costner was one of the first people who, back in the late 90s, heard about the incident. So he was hugely instrumental in bringing the story out and also getting him over to the UN and shine a light on it. So he was definitely, right away, he was on board and wanted to meet with, with Stanislav. Matt Damon... It's all done in a very loving kind of way, just like a little funny joke in there. But uh, they were very gracious, Robert De Niro and then Matt Damon, just to even meet with Stanislav. 
You've also received some impressive support in the making of the film and also since it has been concluded from people not only in the Hollywood community, but also people in the political world. Tell us some of the response, the early response that has come from the film and how you've been supported in getting it out. Well, we've gotten a tremendous amount of support from a lot of different groups, and, and it, it's, it's a very interesting collaboration between people of, and, and groups of all various kinds of backgrounds. So when we opened a film in New York last week, the president of the General Assembly of the United Nations came to open the film and, and, and give an introductory speech. And after the film during the Q&A, he, in fact, deemed the film to be so important that he wanted to... Um, endorse it. So he gave us a, a personal letter that is addressed to all the delegates at the summit at the UN this week for, for all the world leaders. So he is endorsing the film and a copy of the film is given to every head of state that's at the General Assembly this week. We've also gotten a lot of faith and moral-based organizations behind the film. The Pope has been giving a copy of the film various other religious groups behind the film helping us to reach out and just really get the word out because as it turns out everybody can come together and agree on world peace and getting rid of weapons that can undo all of humanity how is stanislav petrov reacting to this early response to the film he's really appreciative now of the fact that people have started to care about this and like i mentioned earlier in the interview that He's not being recognized in, in Russia at all. You know, the movie hasn't come out there. There's very little, very little knowledge of who he is. So we're doing everything we can to spread the word and get it out and also get the film released in Russia. That would be spectacular. In essence, one might say that you and the other filmmakers are the men and perhaps women who saved the man who saved the world. <laughs> well, that's very kind of you to say, but it has definitely been a long journey, especially for for Peter Anthony and, and Jacob Stayberg in Denmark, it's been a, a nine-year journey. But I think we're all just overwhelmed with the support and, and also the reactions to the film. It really couldn't have been expected. Also, the times we're in right now, that nuclear weapons have once again come to the forefront of, of, of news and also something that we realize we all need to start worrying about again. Nine years ago, it was much less of an apparent issue, and now it, of course, is. Um, we did a college tour of the film earlier this year at about 30 colleges. And what was so amazing to see was that it was science departments, physics departments, theology, international study, peace study, global studies. They all came together and hosted these screenings and they all, again, came together. So you have religion and science meeting and agreeing on at least something that we should all join up and try to get rid of these weapons. You know? So. That and then just being in a theater with, with an audience to, who really respond and react to Stanislav's personal story. And I will say that what really, to me, makes the film so powerful and, and again, all to the credit of, of Peter Anthony is that he managed to mirror the two stories of the importance of what happened in 1983 and the importance of understanding the dangers of nuclear weapons, but mirroring that with the personal downfall of Stanislav Petrov. And then the redemption and all that in the film. But when people see the film, they come up afterwards and they say they've never seen anything put together in this particular way that is so emotionally impactful. It was very emotionally impactful. If people wish to learn more about the film, 
and contact you, where can they go? They can go to the man who saved the world movie.com. Thanks to you, Christian Brune, Peter Anthony, and all the others who worked so hard to get this film together. And thank you for being my guest today on Nuclear Hot State. Thank you for having me. That was Christian Brune, executive producer of the film The Man Who Saved the World. For those of you who will be in Los Angeles on April 27, there are still some tickets available for the International Uranium Film Festival, and there is no charge to attend. You can reserve your spot by sending an email to Alex Radlovic. That's A L E X R A D like David, L O V like Victory, I C like Cat at gmail.com. To make it easy, we'll also have a link up on the website nuclearhotseat.com under this week's episode number 252. And this week's activist shout out asks. How do you like to help crowdsource coverage of the Uranium Film Festival for Nuclear Hot Seat? Here's your chance. For those of you attending on April 27 who would like to become a special correspondent for the day for Nuclear Hot Seat, just bring along a digital recording device. While you're at the festival, record your own reviews of the films. Interview the notables. Interview each other. Interview yourself and say what you want to about the festival or about Nuclear Hot Seat. Make certain that you start each of your recordings with your name and contact information. That part won't be used, though you can sign off with your name. Make each recording approximately 60 seconds or less. Then send it to me by Saturday, April 30th at info at nuclearhotseat.com. I'll edit together the best of the clips for the crowdsourced report on the festival. Your chance to be a reporter, commentator, pundit, whatever. I look forward to hearing whatever you come up with. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, April 19, 2016. Material for this week's program has been researched and compiled from enenews.com, king5news.com, and their ace reporter Susanna Frame, prnewswire.com, capecodtimes.com, timesfreepress.com, rt.com, stlouis.cbslocal.com, thelocal.de, ottawacitizen.com, en.rfi.fr, dw.com, entergy.com, and the gold standard of activists who gather on the Nuclear Hot Seat site on Facebook, which you are all invited to come visit and like. And hang out a while, too. We're a good group. Theme music written by me, sung by Marilee Weber, accompanied by John Barnard, and recorded at Winslow Court Studio in Hollywood. And both of these fine musicians, along with the recording engineer, Craig Parker Adams, will be at the film festival next week, so make certain you say hi. Nuclear Hot Seat is syndicated by UCY.TV, StuWebRadioNetwork.com, NewsZSentinel.com, and ActivateMedia.org. We're always looking for other networks to connect with, so if you know a news aggregator or community radio station that would like to carry the show, please put us in touch. Check out the archive of over 250 shows on the website, NuclearHotSeat.com. They're also available on our YouTube channel under Nuclear Hot Seat Videos and on iTunes under Podcasts. On the website, if you sign up for the free chapter from my ebook, Yes, I Glow in the Dark, it will put you in our database and you will receive an email notice of Nuclear Hot Seat every week. And a reminder that your contributions help keep Nuclear Hot Seat the vital force for honest, accurate, 
verifiable, there's that word again, nuclear news. So please do what you can this week to help us out with the donation at NuclearHotSeat.com. Nuclear Hot Seat is the activist voice on nuclear issues. So if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at NuclearHotSeat.com. We are copyright 2016, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as proper attribution is provided. This is Libby Halevi of Hardestry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that we've all had our nuclear wake-up call. Now don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.